0: Well, we're nearing the end of our discussion of how we got our Bible. We talked last time about the transmission of the New Testament. We talked about some of the various uh, materials that were used. We'll just uh, look at a couple of things by way of review. Here's uh, papyrus. This was uh, sort of less expensive than the, the parchment or the, the uh, animal skins we'll see in a minute but this was uh, used by taking some reeds and, and interleaving them and making them flat so you can write on them, and it was uh, perhaps not as durable as the, the parchment, but certainly has, in some cases, lasted for many, many centuries. Here's parchment made out of animal skins. This would be more expensive, also more durable, also reusable, and we talked about some of that uh, palimpsest, which we'll look at in a minute, um here's Dead Sea Scrolls, an example of scrolls. Uh, we have these pages that are uh, linked together, and then you unroll them. I think we all know how the scrolls work. And we looked also at Codecs, which is more like the books we have today. So parchment written then on both sides, and they can be joined with a uh, sewn together, again, like like our books today, and then bound uh, on one end. We talked also about uh, palimpsests. This is where you take a, a parchment that had been used before and then you can reuse it, you can scrape off, or maybe if it's been a long time, the ink has faded, you can just use it again because the writing materials are so precious, so expensive, they could be reused. Sometimes you would have things that were sacred, people didn't know what they were, they'd be reused for more secular purposes and we can take those today and look at them and see what was behind them using a special technologies, photography, x-ray, that kind of thing, to to bring out the original text. Sometimes there were things that were secular uses that were used for prayer books and things like that. Uh, Here's uh, ostraca, or this ostracon, this is singular, pieces of pottery that people would take, and you might find a piece of pottery on the ground, and like we might carry slips of paper or a notebook in our pocket, you can get a piece of pottery if you need to write something down quickly, and uh, use that, and there are many, many thousands of these that get found from centuries ago with lots of interesting things like shopping lists or receipts, things that we might use pieces of paper for even today. We began talking about errors that creep into the text. We, we can't pretend that the Bible was transmitted to us like a photocopy that as soon as the Apostle Paul, say, wrote, finished his letter that he, like we might today, you do carbon copies, that kind of thing, or send an email and that's and preserved forever, just as it was. Um, so these would be written, uh, handwritten, copied from place to place, church to church. Maybe the church in Corinth would circulate the letters to to nearby churches, or they might have a, a friend who's going to the church at Rome and they could take a letter, a copy of the letter with them to another church because they're interested in what the Apostle Paul, for example, had to say, or or the Gospel uh, of Matthew could get trans- transmitted from, let's say, Syria, where we think it started in Antioch to go around the Christian world at that time. But as they were copied, errors would creep in. And so we talked about different kinds of errors. We talked about errors of um, mishearing, for example. Sometimes you would have a a room full of of scribes, So somebody would stand up front and read a letter or read a manuscript, and people would write that down as they heard it. Sometimes they had a piece of paper or, or a parchment, and they would just copy what they see. So if there are words that sound similar, they might uh, mishear them and, and miswrite them. I talked about the camelos, the rope versus camelos, camel. Um, whether it's a rope or a camel that goes through the eye of a needle, both of them kind of make sense. But which is the original word? We talked about misspellings or variants in spelling, even as we have in between American English and British English. Not necessarily errors, but just different ways of spelling things. Um, misremembering, that as you're writing something that you've just read, you might think, well, I'm used to the term fruit of the spirit, and so uh, instead I'm going to Um, instead of writing fruit of the light in Ephesians 5, I might write fruit of the spirit. Um, Wrong division. Remember they had the words sort of packed together and without spaces or punctuation. So you might hear, you see something in English like God is nowhere versus God is now here. Uh, You could skip lines. You could repeat lines. You might write a word or a phrase uh, once that should be written twice or twice that should be written once and so forth. You might miss a word here or there. You might add a word here or there. Um, You might write, uh, for example, you're used to writing Lord Jesus Christ. You see the term Jesus Christ. You might write Lord Jesus Christ when it really should just be Jesus Christ. You might transpose words, letters. You might say Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ. Um, You also might uh, misread similarly shaped letters. I showed a picture of this last time where we have the... Omicron here, it just looks like an O to us, and a theta is like an omicron with a line through it. And this C is a sigma, S sound. So we have hos, which means who, or we have an abbreviation, theos, which means God. So there are some scripts, manuscripts, Greek manuscripts in First Timothy 3.16 that say he who was revealed in the flesh or God was manifested in the flesh, depending on whether you read this as hos or theos. We also looked at, we didn't quite get here last time, there are other kinds of errors that would be due to harmonization. That is, uh, accidentally or purposely adding text from another gospel or another book. So, for example, we have here an example from Matthew 9.13. says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then Luke 5.32, the parallel passage says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the King James Version, New King James, has to repentance in Matthew 9.13. So in in Matthew, Jesus says, in King James, New King James, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a a harmonized version of Matthew and Luke. Because the textual family, the set of manuscripts that the King James relied on, had to repentance in in Matthew chapter 9. But the, the most likely reading is not to have the words repentance in Matthew 9.13. Generally, the practice now is to prefer the non-harmonized version to be the best, especially when earlier manuscripts are not harmonized. So you look at the earliest manuscripts, say these aren't harmonized. Probably what happened later is some scribes decided to harmonize them, and so we will unharmonize them in these cases. There are also issues dealing with different sources. Um, That is, we have one by one manuscript that says one thing, another manuscript says another. How do I determine which the original reading is? Well, sometimes you just would harmonize them. So, for example, we have Luke 24:53 says the disciples were continually in the temple praising God. Another source says blessing God, and so we have this text now that just says the disciples were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Not sure if it's praising, not sure if it's blessing. So we'll just put them both in there. I hope one of them is right sometimes there will be correction of supposed errors. we have, Origin uh, Origen around, uh, the 200 found out that if nearly all manuscripts of John 128 referred to, refers to Bethany beyond the Jordan. We talked about this years ago when we talked about this verse. So there's, in John 128, there's Bethany beyond the Jordan. Well, Origen wasn't aware of any Bethany beyond the Jordan, and he was only a, a couple centuries after this time, and so he, Altered it to Bethabara, so from Bethany to Bethabara. He knew there's Bethabara over there, so this must be a mistake. So some of you correct things mistakenly, thinking that this is correct. Another one is taking up marginal notes into the text. And so let's let's say you had a some of you have your own Bibles where you will write notes in the margin, maybe a, a special thing that strikes you, a quote from a preacher, or a thought that you have next to your margin, and it might be in this situation, somebody's writing uh, from one source to another, you you put an, a note in the margin, well, what if 200 years later somebody sees that marginal note and they're wondering, was this just a note from the scribe to himself, uh, a thought he had, or is this part of the original that he maybe missed. Like, we would put a little carrot in there to say, this belongs here. I I forgot to put this in there. And so the scribe can't ask the person. He's been dead for hundreds of years. So, is this the original, or is it not the original? One example of this is in uh, Romans 8.1. Now, we can't be sure of these things, because these scribes are long gone. But Romans 8.1 in the New King James says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we have this this phrase here: "Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." But the New American Standard says, "Just therefore, there is now no non, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." It omits this this final phrase. Now, Paul, if you are familiar with Romans eight, you'll see later on Paul goes goes on to talk about those who walk according to the Spirit versus the flesh. And so it may be that the scribe who was writing in the one of the manuscripts that ended up influencing the King James, and New King James Version, wrote a marginal note that said, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, uh, whereas the other text traditions didn't use that. So maybe this last phrase was just added later. Probably the most famous example of this possible way of taking up marginal notes into the text is in 1 John 5, 7, and 8. And there's lots of discussion about this. I don't have time to go in to what is the original. There are people on both sides of this debate, but the New King James says this, for 1 John 5, 7, and 8. For there are three that bear witness, and then we have this bracket, in heaven, but this is not bracketed in the King James, but in New King James it is. "In, In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. The New American Standard says, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So this whole middle part here, um, where it says, in heaven down to the, uh, where is it? To the agreement. Yeah, so basically the, the, the heaven and then on earth. So this part here, kind of the middle of this Verse are not in the manuscripts that the New American Standard relied on. And so, uh, notice that the New King James translators add this comment, only four or five very late manuscripts contain these words in Greek, and that those would be centuries after some of the manuscripts that, that omit it. And so, the supposition is that somebody had written this section here, just as a marginal note, to uh, amplify, perhaps what the writer was saying in 1 John 5 and then a later scribe saw those notes and thought it was part of the original and brought them into the text and that became part of a certain text tradition so if you were going to talk to a friend about the doctrine of the Trinity this is not the first verse you go to Now, if all you knew is the King James Version then this might be one of the go to verses because it says explicitly that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit these three are one but it's not good to rely on that that text in this verse if you're going to try to describe the Trinity. There are many other verses you can go to to describe the Trinity that may be not as explicit as what's said here, but this is probably not likely from the original pen of the Apostle John. That's why it's good if you have a, a Bible that has these sort of marginal notes. It will say, have a little number or a letter and look at that and say, this was not, in. Oh, maybe only one or two manuscripts have this, or only a few manuscripts have this, so that you don't rely for your discussion, your theological point, on a particular verse, where you can go to other passages that are more solid in that sense. The so other possible kind of error would be for liturgical reasons, that is, for wor- reasons of worship, for your worship service. This is a fairly common one. Pretty well known. And if you're reading the Lord's Prayer or singing it, you have this verse, Matthew 6.13 says, For yours or for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And the, the orchestra and the choir swells, and it's all very beautiful. But did Jesus really say this? The early Greek texts don't include this doxology, this for yours is a kingdom phrase. And also, early commentaries don't mention it. So you'd think if this was original... That men like Tertullian, Origen, Cyprian, these men, who are part of the early part of the church, talking about the Lord's Prayer, Matthew six, would discuss it, and they don't. And so, the supposition is that this phrase, this end, the sentence here was added for liturgical reasons. So people would say the Lord's Prayer, then you would add this at the end. It may have been a pattern after the prayer of David. In uh, First Chronicles 29, 11-13, which says, which sounds much the same, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. So the words in Matthew 6.13, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, are biblical. They're, they're good. But as to whether Jesus actually included them in his example of the Lord's Prayer, probably not. But that doesn't mean every time you're singing that, that hymn in church that you just need to stop. You can still sing those words. That's okay if you're singing them in the in, in the, the hymn book. Now there's probably more we can go to, but let's stop there for now. Let's ask ourselves, how do we handle such variants? How do scholars handle variants? I don't handle variants so much myself. I'll let the scholars who know what they're talking about do this. Well, one is to carefully examine different Greek manuscripts, especially the earlier ones. So we've tried to find the some old manuscripts, a variety of manuscripts, and compare, contrast them. Another useful thing is to look at early translations. Uh, Syriac, we've talked about before, it's related to uh, Aramaic, it's related to to Hebrew. And so there are early translations into Syriac to, to Latin, many other languages. And so what did the other Christians, as they translated the scriptures from Greek into other languages, what manuscripts are they looking at? And if there are phrases that are omitted in these translations, it may well be that they are not originally in the Greek either. You can also look at quotations for, from early church fathers. As I mentioned before in Matthew 6, 13, the early church fathers, when they are referring to this passage in the Gospels, say, or, or Paul's letters, are they using that term as well? Or you might say, did the early church fathers who were trying to support the Trinity, were they using that variant reading in 1 John 5? Were they using that as part of their, their argument? If not, that indicates that probably they they weren't even aware of it. And then another uh, possibility is to look for citations in lectionaries. Those are church service books um, and and other writings. How are they going to uh, take portions of the scriptures of those writings and, and use them themselves? When they copy them, are they in them as well? Now, some critics like to throw out statements like there are many thousands of variants in New Testament manuscripts. And that's true, but it's misleading. And the vast majority of them can be handled very simply. And there are a few, very few, that cause much trouble. And none of the discrepancies bring into doubt any central doctrine of Christianity. So, for example, we, if we say that probably 1 John 5, that that... that, that that place that says Father, Son, and Spirit are one. If we say that's not part of the original, it doesn't mean that we now have lost the Trinity. If we say that in First Timothy that it doesn't say actually God, but it says Who, it doesn't mean that we lose the deity of Christ. There's lots of verses about the deity of Christ, and so we don't need to worry that there's there's one uh, text that if we pull it out, the whole uh, the whole Scripture will unravel because of that that one verse or that, that handful of verses. Now there are some sections that are uncertain. The longest ones, as you might know, are end of John 7, beginning of John 8, the woman caught in adultery. That's bracketed in many Bibles. Uh, I, don't, I won't go into the, the details behind that. We talked about that when we looked at John 7 and 8 some months or years ago. But, the question is: Is that original? Is that a true story? It may have been true, but not in the original of John. Um, also, the longer ending of Mark. If you look at Mark, this is kind of interesting. How how is it that Mark actually ends? So, if you're looking at Mark 16, you're reading along. And you get to Mark 16, verse 8. It says, They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, that's the end of the the certain text tradition of Mark, which is rather an abrupt ending. You don't have uh, the Great Commission and other kinds of things. And so there are a couple of main traditions that have other endings of Mark. There's so-called long endings, short ending. There's variants in all of these things. Um, and so in my Bible, I have uh, verse 9 down to verse 20, and there, it's all in brackets, and it has a note that says, Later manuscripts add verses 9 to 20. And then after that, there's another section that is in italics and in brackets. It's just another verse or two. That says uh, the, the, the note says, A few late manuscripts and versions contain this paragraph, usually after verse 8. A few have it at the end of chapter at the end of the chapter. So, in any case, we have these uncertain manuscript evidences that the, these verses 9 to 20 are part of Mark, or maybe this other section is part of Mark, that kind of floats around. Again, there are lots of variants. Something that maybe the original of Mark was lost, that get to verse 8 of chapter 16, and there was a, a last page where Mark had his his final words, and that got lost, and so somebody added something else later. Now, the point is, we can't be exactly 100% certain as to where Mark ends. And maybe Mark ended at verse 8 for dramatic purposes. We can't say. We can't get in his mind now. So we just do the best we can, try to understand what the, the text, uh, say. What do these textual variants say? One important thing is that we look, knowing that the best and oldest manuscripts don't contain these last verses, is that we don't base any great doctrine on them. Now, there are things like uh, verse 15, and Mark 16 says, go and preach the gospel to all creation, and so forth. So that sounds like the Great Commission from Matthew. But then we have things like um, verse 19, these signs, or verse 17 rather, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, and they will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, there are things kind of like this in other verses in the Gospels and elsewhere, but verse 18, was says they will pick up serpents and deadly poisons, these are used to justify things like snake handling in some of the Pentecostal groups, especially in Appalachia and other places, that this is a promise to them that if they get bit by a snake, by a serpent, a venomous serpent, it won't harm them. And they found out the hard way, many of them, that this is not a promise for all time. So the point is, for these disputed or uncertain passages, let's not make real strong assertions based on these texts of particular doctrines. Let's use other scriptures, and there are many other scriptures that could be used in order to support some, some doctrines that we're trying to understand better. Any questions so far? Does that all make sense? Yes. A lectionary is a, a it's a church service book, so you come and here, here's our service, and so you write down the, the verses you wanted to to go through that kind of thing. So this may be interesting or not. I found some this this on the internet and adapted it a bit. But let's say we have. A set of manuscripts. And you don't have the original manuscript, but can you determine what the original, po- uh, probably is? So we have, I don't know how well you can see this. Can you see it okay, some of you in the front? So manuscript one says this, and then manuscript two. And so we have the, uh, let's say we have five manuscripts. Now there, there's, there's similarities. Um, Jesus Christ is the savior of the whole world. Okay? And that says, Christ Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Well, it has Jesus and Christ transposed. Also has a U in there. Maybe the guy who wrote this is from England or something. This third one, Jesus Christ is, is the Savior of the whole world. Jesus X is the Savior of the whole world. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Now, if you're looking at this, this is a pretty simple example. Um, I think it's pretty obvious. We could just say, this, this is saying that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. So this person here forgot a D. This person swapped a word by mistake and spelled it with a different spelling. In this case, they just wrote the same word twice. In this case, they perhaps used the, the what well, is an X to us, but a chi in, in Greek to, to abbreviate the, the word Christ. And then this one, uh, they forgot an I here. And so it ends up spelling another word, saver, but we know that doesn't mean Jesus is a savor or the, the flavor, that kind of thing, of the whole world doesn't make sense. And so, you can just take these examples, and you, as you compare them, you can get what the original most likely was. Now, there's some that are a lot more difficult than this, and imagine doing this with uh, Greek manuscripts that are, are faded and difficult to read, uh, very fragile in some cases, so you can't necessarily get your hands on them and, and look at them up close, but there are many scholars who have spent their lives looking at things like this, and it really can give us confidence in that the texts, the Greek texts in particular, that are behind the New Testament, and that we can understand that the English texts we've gotten uh, through the centuries are are very reliable. Now let's look a little bit more at the the variance, that is the, how different manuscripts are different from others. How many of them are there? Some count as many as 200,000 of them. But those only occur in about 10,000 places in the New Testament. Now remember, the New Testament's a pretty big book and we have thousands of manuscripts. So somebody says 200,000 differences, you think, oh wow, that's a lot. This is a mess. Now if you had only two manuscripts, that would be a lot of differences. But if you have thousands of, different, of manuscripts, that's not so so bad. And those variants, they are indeed variants, but they are not necessarily errors. That is, there are variants in spelling that wouldn't be errors. They're just different ways of spelling things. We can ask ourselves, how important are these variants? And one... um, there's back up here. I'm not quite there yet. Um, Westcott and Hort were uh, scholars from the late 1800s, and they said this, uh, said about them, only about one-eighth of all the variants had any weight, and most of them... Are merely mechanical matters such as spelling or style. Only about one sixtieth rise above trivialities, or can in any sense be called substantial variations. And they uh, describe the, the New Testament text as ninety-eight percent, more than ninety-eight percent, pure. Uh, Philip Schaff, another scholar from the 1800s, said of the 1, 150,000 rather variations known in this day, only 400 affected the sense and of those, only 50 were of real significance. And of this total, not one affected an article of faith or a precept of duty, which is not abundantly sustained by other and undoubted passages or by the whole tenor of Scripture teaching. As I said before, uh, if if we lose due to variance one or two, uh, what we think are important verses for a particular doctrine, there are many to back it up. He also... uh, The A.T. Robertson, a scholar from the early 20th century, suggested that the real concern of textual criticism is of a thousandth part of the entire text. That would make the reconstructed text of the New Testament 99.9% free from real concern for the textual critic. Hence, as Warfield observed, the great mass of the New Testament, in other words, has been transmitted to us with no or next-to-no variations. And then this final quote from... Norman Geisler and William Nix says this, At first, the great multitude of variants would seem to be a liability to the integrity of the Bible text. But just the contrary is true, for the larger number of variants supplies at the same time the means of checking on those variants. As strange as it may appear, the corruption of the text provides the means for its own correction. Again, as time goes on, we have many... Many manuscripts, we can check the variants with each other and say this is probably the right path through this. Or at least if you don't know for sure, you can make a note, like your Bible may have a note. Some manuscripts say this, some say that. And so we can be aware of as Christians in the 21st century that there's some discussion, some dispute as to what the proper uh, reading of this text is, but at least we know it and can, and can, can be have that awareness as we're making our own interpretational decisions. Now, as I mentioned before, there are are thousands of copies of portions of the New Testament in Greek. There are more than 10,000 copies of the Latin Vulgate plus many other early translations. So again, we could take the, the Latin Vulgate transmitted through the centuries, especially by the Roman Catholic Church, take the Syriac, take other things from even f- further away, even further linguistically, further geographically. And as we compare the different languages, we can say, well, this, this parallels exactly what the Greek is here. This maybe uh, has some variations. This has some additions. This has some changes. And so, again, as we compare those things, we, met, not meaning me, but we, meaning the, the scholarly community who's interested in discovering the, the true text of the New Testament, can be confident in the, the readings that we have today. The guys who next continue, they say this, that the New Testament then is not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in purer form than any other great book. Oh, sorry. There it is. Now, just sort a of point of interest, hopefully, to you. I uh, want to talk about some just early uh, scraps. There, again, there are thousands of these. We don't have time to go through hardly any of them, but I just wanted to show them, hopefully, as of interest to you. But first, let me mention a couple of writing types. There's unseal. It's something like, we would, if we're writing in all capital letters, then and we've seen that before, and I'll show it to you in a couple minutes. And sometimes words can be abbreviated. So we have large letters. We have has capital letters squished together. And then sometimes you have abbreviations like we saw before. We have the theta and the sigma with a line over it as a shorthand for theos. There's also a a writing type called minuscule, and this is something like cursive. It's it's used later, say, the 9th, 15th centuries. minuscule, and we'll see an example of that as well. So unseal, the all caps, minuscule is more like cursive like we might see today. So this is an example. This is the Ryland's papyrus fragment, and this is... Portions of John 18 dated anywhere from 117 to 138. And so this is very early on, just decades after uh, probably it was written, the the original gospel was written. This particular fragment is written on both sides. It's available, you can see it in in England. Uh, It was found in Egypt, and it lends support to the traditional dating of the gospel before the end of the first century. So some will say, no, John must have been written much later. Well, the fact that we have this this fragment in Egypt of the Gospel of John, John 18, within a couple decades, indicates probably it was written earlier than elsewhere. Here's Codex Sinaiticus, and I mentioned this last time. This was written around the middle of the 300s. This picture, and I can't read any of it, this is a uh, the end of the Gospel of John. And then I also have a example here. This is a close-up of John 20. It's probably a lot clearer. You actually go online, and they've, they've scanned all of Codex Sinaiticus. And it's, it's really... You can, I find it fascinating. And it, Even if I can't really... I can maybe sound out some stuff, but where the word breaks, I, I don't know. But it shows, here's what it is, and here, here's the Greek, and here's an English translation, so you can follow along with what's going on. So you have here, here's the main column. So let, me, let me go back here. So you can see it's written in four columns, at least in this portion. This is a close-up of one column, and this is more in color, but you can see here that uh, it's it's pretty, uh, very carefully, well-written. Uh, no lines or anything like we need today to write stuff. But you can see things like this. Here's this uh, word chi, usually and, kind of written, sort of snuck in here. Um, some other things that sort of go off the end. Uh, there's some notes here and that that are connected here. So this refers to something here. Some other thing here, this uh, little tilty looking thing, uh, refers to something in here, and it's some other writing. So is all Greek. You see how it's capital letters all squished together, trying to uh, use the space. But then there are other hands. We talked about this last time. I think three or four different particular handwriting styles in here. And so the scholars can look at this and say this this is Codex Sinaiticus as it was originally written, and then over the years they might have some other hands write marginal notes, whether it be a description of something that was already written or maybe an omission. They, they had another text and they wrote this in a margin to indicate that there might have been a, a mistake in Codex Sinaiticus. I want to read you a fairly long... Story. I find it fascinating. I told you last time that there's a story behind how Codex Sinaiticus was discovered in modern times. And let me just read this quote to you. This is from John Patterson Smith, who's writing in 1899. And he says this, The story of his discovery about 50 years ago is full of interest. It is called the Sinaitic manuscript from the place where it was found by the great German scholar Dr. Tischendorf. His whole life was given up to the discovery and study of ancient manuscripts of the Bible, and he traveled all over the East searching every old library he could get into for the purpose. But it was quite unexpectedly in St. Catherine's Convent at the foot of Mount Sinai that he discovered this the pearl of all his researches, as he calls it. In visiting the library of the convent in the month of May, 1844, he perceived in the middle of the Great Hall a basket full of old parchments, and the librarian told him that the two heaps of similar old documents had already been used for the fires. so hard to think of. They actually have these old manuscripts. are burning them for, for warmth. What was his surprise to find in the basket a number of sheets of a copy of the Septuagint, Greek Old Testament, the most ancient-looking manuscript that he had ever seen? The authorities of the convent allowed him to take away about 40 sheets as they were only intended for the fire. But he displayed so much satisfaction with his gift that the suspicion of the monks was aroused as to the value of the manuscript and they refused to give him any more. He returned to Germany and with his precious sheets made a great sensation in the literary world. But he took very good care not to to tell where he got them as he still had hopes of securing the remainder and he soon had reason to congratulate himself on his caution for the English government at once sent out a scholar to help buy up any valuable Greek manuscripts as he could lay hands on and poor Dr. Tischendorf was very uneasy that lest the Englishman should stumble upon the old basket on Mount Sinai. You may judge of his relief when he saw the Englishman's report soon after, telling of his failure, for, said he, after the visit of such a critic as Dr. Tischendorf, I could not, of course, expect any success. The doctor seems quite happy to enjoy this telling of the part of the story. He tried next, by means of an influential friend at the court of Egypt, to procure the rest of the manuscript without success. The monks of the convent, wrote his friend, have since your departure learned the value of the parchments, and now they will not part with them at any price. So he paid another visit to Mount Sinai, but could only find one sheet containing 11 lines of the Book of Genesis, which showed him that the manuscript originally contained the entire Old Testament. To shorten the story, I must pass over 15 years, during which time he had enlisted the sympathy of the Emperor of Russia, and in 1859 we find him again at the convent with a commission from the Emperor himself. However, he found very little of any value and had made his arrangements to leave without accomplishing his mission, when a quite unexpected event brought about all that he had wished for. The very evening before he was to leave, he was walking in the grounds with the steward of the convent, and as he returned, the monk asked him into a cell to take some refreshment. Scarcely had they entered the cell. When resuming his former conversation, the monk said, I too have read a copy of that Septuagint. Again, that's the Greek Old Testament. And so saying, he took down a bulky bundle, wrapped in red cloth, and laid it on the table. Tischendorf opened the parcel, and to his great surprise, found not only those very fragments that he had seen 15 years before, but also other parts of the Old Testament, the New Testament complete, and some of the apocryphal books. Full of joy, which this time he had the self-content to conceal, he asked in a careless way for permission to look over it in his bedroom. And there by myself, he says, I gave way to my transports of joy. I knew that I held in my hand one of the most precious biblical treasures in existence, a document whose age and importance exceeded that of any I had ever seen after 20 years' study of the subject. At length, through the emperor's influence, he succeeded in obtaining the precious manuscript, which is now stored up in the Library of St. Petersburg, the greatest treasure which the Eastern Church possesses. Now, much of it's in England now, but the point is here that this was a Nearly horrific thing that these manuscripts from about 340, 350 were um, were being burned. You might remember that Codex Sinaiticus has the entire New Testament, with with a few exceptions, and about half of the Old Testament in Greek, and it may be that those other ones were just burned for fire, uh, for warmth. And so, this mantitian dwarf through through God's providence and his persistence, and even some, some sneaky behavior, managed to get a hold of this and preserve it now for us for all time. So we can be grateful for God's providence and who knows how many other manuscripts might be out there even now, like the Dead Sea Scrolls found just in the 1940s and others that, that could be still discovered. As I said before, the Codex Sinaiticus contains over half the Old Testament and all of the New, with the exception of Mark 16, 1920. There's that that disputed end of Mark I mentioned and John 7, Fifty-three to eight eleven, which is the woman caught in adultery. So those two big portions, uh, the biggest portions of the New Testament that are in dispute, were not in Codex Sinaiticus. So hopefully, you find that an interesting story about how God preserved His Word through the centuries through this through this man in particular. Uh, oh, it's a, it's a book called How We Got Our Bible. A man named John Patterson Smith. I can I can show it to you later. It's on the internet, but um, just and we can do this all day but just a couple of examples this is codex palatinaus uh, this is 11th century the first page of Matthew this this codex remember it's a, a book has the four gospels with special ornamentation at the beginning of each gospel and here's the first page of Matthew you see it, this nice uh, picture here uh, ornamentation at the beginning of of Matthew um, codex Iberianus from the 12th century And this has scenes and author portraits before the Gospels and some other books. So here we have, I know it's hard to see here, but up here you can see, if you look closely the nativity scene, here's baby Jesus with a halo and Joseph and Mary. And here is a picture, supposedly, of St. Matthew writing his text. And here's an example in the same text of John 1. And here we can see the minuscule versus unsealed. See, this this text is not the, the big block letters. This is more... Uh, upper lowercase with separations of words like we would expect today. Um, And here's a 7th century lectionary. I mentioned that before, lectionaries. Sort of scripture reading books. Um, And here's Luke 24, where it says they didn't find his body and so forth. Um, They came saying they had seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. So this is again written 7th century, um, some Christians somewhere, I, I'm not sure offhand where this is found, but this is again a portion of Luke 23 or 24, and you could, you have this as a personal sort of devotional book to read the scripture for the day or, or for the, the church to have for a special occasion, like some churches have particular Sundays devoted to, to a special portions of scripture. Well, we're running low on time, so let me just wrap things up here. Um, We can be honest about the differences in the many manuscripts. And some Christians just want to say, I I don't see anything. I just want to take my King James or whatever it is and say, this is what it is. But we, we don't need to do that. We can be honest about these differences because they are there, like it or not. And we can remain confident in trusting the biblical texts that have been handed down to us. And if you are challenged by people who might say the Bible's full of errors. You don't need to panic. and Don't be afraid to say you don't know the answer. The chances are that the answer is available somewhere. I don't know the answers myself. I've made some study of it, but there's lots out there to learn. There are many critics of the Bible, but there are also many scholars who believe in inerrancy, who have seen the same evidence of variance, and they have not had their faith shaken. So don't let your, your faith be shaken. Uh, James White said this, of this whole issue. It's like we have a 1,000-piece puzzle, but we don't have 10 missing pieces. We sort of have 10 extra pieces. We're not sure how these pieces fit. Some some pieces seem to fit just as well as others, so we seem to have more text than probably is in the original, not less. So it's not like we're missing whole Gospels or whole, whole portions of the Bible text. God has inspired His Word, and He has preserved His Word, and it may not be as as perfect as we would like in terms of having no variance at all, but we have so much data that helps us to get closer and closer to that as time goes on. We just close a couple of quotes. Now, this is Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was a scholar of ancient languages in the 18, 1900s. He said this, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds it in it, the true word of God, handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it, in the oldest writers of the Church, is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This could be said of no other ancient book in the world. And then finally from G.T. Manley said this, We hold in our hands today a Bible which differs in no substantial particular from the originals of the various books as they came from the hands of their authors. So we can be confident that God has preserved his word. Any final brief questions? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you preserved your word for us. Thank you for the men and women who have spent their lives looking for these manuscripts, comparing them, uh, painstaking work, difficult work. They've done it, not even necessarily for your glory, and that you have used men and women, both um, saints and sinners, you, those who, who care about your word and those who, who don't care about you very much, who don't follow Christ. But we thank you for this this labor that we can benefit from in our own day and help us to love your word even more, to study it more closely and have greater confidence in it. Thank you that we, we have it in our hands, we can learn it, we can love it, and we can grow from it, you come to know Christ. We pray that you would work in our hearts today to come to know Him better. We ask in His name, Amen.